it is my honor to welcome Sir Paul Tucker, research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and author of Global Discord, Values and Power in a Fractured World Order. So, Paul, welcome to Forward Guidance. How are you doing? I'm very well, and I'm very glad to be here. And you should use the surbit only once, not again, please. <laughs> I'm, it, it, I'm very proud and honored to have been knighted by my country, but Americans are always too polite, so call me Paul from now on. All right. I promise that that will be the last one. Uh, Paul, Sir Paul, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what what uh, motivated you to write the book? I understand you, you have a thesis that you feel quite strongly about. What do you mean by global discord? Yes. Well, I from, oh gracious, the mid-zeros really, um, so before the financial crisis and very much after the financial crisis, I just thought the world was changing in profound ways through the rise of China. The, mir the miracle of compound growth. Um, and I thought that the rise of China had the potential to change the world because its governing ideology is so completely different to the to the ideology, in a way, our ideology, our way of life that has so dominated the world over the last 70 years. And I thought this would have profound implications for, for international cooperation, international regimes, international organizations. And, and I wanted to write a book that addressed that at a high level, a level, if you like, of international political theory, but also at ground level in terms of what it means for, for policy in various fields, with a ladder between what I call the high, book's high road and the book's low road. Yes. And what are the consequences of this? I know when China first emerged on, on the scene as a you know, rising economic power, analysts said China is adopting parts of uh, Western economically, so, so too it will follow that it will become more democratic. How has that thesis played out in, in your evaluation? Well, it's played out very poorly. And, and I don't think that's very surprising, but I think there's another point to be made about it. This goes back to the um, 1990s, really, where the, the view was that Deng Xiaoping's economic liberalizations would inevitably lead to political liberalization in, in China. Now, I didn't think that was very likely as it happens. But I don't think it was unreasonable for people to think, well, actually, it really might lead to political liberalization. That I think it was reasonable for people to put a higher probability on that than I did. But I think it was crazy for people to put all their chips on it. And I thought that at the time. I thought, why are we conducting ourselves in ways where we're effectively relying on, on China um, liberalizing politically. Because in a sense, why should the party want to liberalize? They're just being realistic about it. The party has ruled China since 1949, and it, it presumably quite likes ruling China. And so why should it give up ruling uh, China? Now, to be fair to the 1990s, the, the Washington did... Uh, pursue closer security ties with Tokyo and South Korea. And that was a sensible thing. But in the economic sphere, 
I think that policy from the West was China's going to become like us. And, and if nowhere else, that completely blew up in the trade sphere and in the, in the World Trade Organization, which we could talk about. It's, I think it's rather more severe than that. But um, j just in the economic sphere alone, the optimism turned out to be um, ungrounded. As a lot in the book, you focus on uh, multinational institutions uh, such as the Bank of, uh, Bank of International Settlements, um, where you work, you, you're a former central banker at the Bank of England. There's also the World Trade Organization and the uh, GATT. W what do you think were the, the failings on trade policy uh, that, that stand out most to you? So I, I think the best way of explaining this is to tell a, a, a story of a particular case and, and the sting comes at the end. So going back just about a decade, um, there was a case concerning that went to the WTO concerning subsidies, export subsidies um, from Chinese state-owned enterprises. So China was using its state-owned enterprises to subsidize exports. Its exports were cheaper than they would otherwise have been. And the United States said, um, oh, you can't do that. Such subsidies are illegal under the WTO treaty. And in the jargon, um, you must either stop doing it or we will put in place what are called countervailing measures, which just means imposing tariffs. So China, if you think of it very simply, China reduces the price um, and, and America then pushes up the price by charging uh, a tariff. And Beijing responded to Washington by saying, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't employ those countervailing measures because our subsidies are not subsidies within the meaning of the treaty. So it goes to dispute resolution and it goes through the hierarchy of, of bodies and ends up in the appellate board. And the appellate board finds in favor of China. And it finds in favor of China because it says that within the meaning of the treaty, State-owned enterprises aren't, I think the term is, public bodies. Now, there's a sense in which your viewers and listeners will think, this is plainly crazy, uh, because it's, it's a party-led state, and of course they were carrying out the wishes of the, of the state. But what we should pause, and then that's all true, and Washington was very annoyed, and it was all very bad, and it's... This is part of the background to the United States not um, continuing to appoint judges to um, the appellate board in the WTO, and partly why the WTO is now sclerotic. But that's not the really big problem. So judges decide things in um, constitutional democracies all the time in ways that we don't like. And, but we let the decision stand as a backward-looking matter. It's part of the rule of law. And we say, but as a forward-looking matter, we need to change the law. That's quite hard sometimes in the United States, given the system, but it happens. And in a Westminster-style democracy like Britain, it's quite easy. And one of the reasons our judges are so independent, so unpolitical compared to American judges, is it's so much easier for Parliament to fix the forward-looking law. So that's the model that one has. One accepts the determination of the judges. And if one needs to, one fixes the law going forward. So that, that basic approach should apply to the WTO. So what one would expect to happen 
is a bargaining session, a negotiation, diplomacy between Beijing and, and Washington, say with Brussels there, the other great trade power, um, conceivably with Tokyo as well. And they'd come up with some kind of agreement where Washington would make good some of its losses, Europe too, and Beijing would give up some of its gains, but not entirely. And then somebody clever at that kind of thing would 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 translate that into words that could be put into the treaty, and things would be much better than otherwise, except that's not possible. Because under the WTO, everybody, every member has a veto. I say that, wow, that's quite something. I mean, we can never change it. Well, we better get rid of the veto. Well, you can't because everybody's got a veto over it. <laughs> you can't veto the veto. Um, and then you think, and you'll, the purpose of the story will, um, this is chapter 17 of the book, will become apparent, I hope. So you then think, so what was going on when they agreed uh, this WTO treaty? So here are two images to have in mind. The, the, the first is crazy and the second is irresponsible. The first would be, um, we are writing the perfect treaty. It will never need changing We're for all time. I mean, I, you know, I've been a bureaucrat in the, the nodded trade, but in other things, no, no one say thinks that. I mean, that's just, you know, not professional. But the other thing you could be thinking is, well, but nothing very bad can go wrong because Yes, the world will change and new countries will rise and they'll become powers, but they're never going to challenge the basic liberal trade order. They're basically going to um, buy into the vision um, that is inherent in the WTO treaty and in the gas um, before that. Well, that's just not true. That's just not true. I mean, China's not. I mean, China wants to use its great might, which is um, to subsidize its exports and in a sense of i don't think that makes them bad or anything like that i think the i think the the treaty was deeply flawed because it gave everybody a veto as though the world was lovely and and you'd never need profound change well actually we can't even bargain our way out of a big dispute and paul what are the consequences of uh, China impo imposing tariffs and you know not going along with the, the trade. On the face of it, if the U.S. runs, you know, uh, is the printer of the global hegemonic currency, the dollar, there is an avid demand for do you know dollar-based debt instruments. So when China runs a trade surplus and the U.S. runs a trade deficit, uh, they, they just you know we basically get we 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 buy more than they sell for, from us, and we you'll know, create paper. That uh, they put put in their treasuries. On the face of it, it sounds like a pretty good deal for America. What am I missing from that? You know, oversimplified analysis. No, it's a really great question, of course. So I think the place to start is well, China's subsidizing and America's getting cheaper imports. That's that's good for consumers because it means that whatever their real disposable income is, they've now got more of it. And they can spend a bit more on other things. I mean, everyone always defends, not everyone. A lot of people tend, particularly business people, tend to defend and think of free trade in terms of exports. Free trade is all about the benefits of imports uh, and cheaper imports and what economists call 
comparative advantage. Now, this isn't always wonderful. Um, in aggregate, it can be wonderful, but it can be costly to particular industries and particular localities. And the United States, I mean, there's now research that shows that some local areas did suffer um, because of cheaper imports from China. Now, that it, of itself doesn't make trade a bad thing because America is a very rich country and it could have done more to redistribute resources in the United States and help retrain people and things like that. But if China continues to grow at an absolutely vast rate, say it becomes four times as big as the United States, well, then the United States, and it continued to subsidize um, exports, the United States would not be able to afford to um, to offset the costs, the social costs um, of, of subsidized imports. The monetary side of this is, is, is very interesting in that another part of this, so I'm now completely switching tack to the Please. monetary and financial things, which is, so if you're subsidizing um, exports, you can think of this as a mercantilist policy in which you, in this case, China becomes a net saver. Um, and if, if the country is very big as it is, what that does is it pushes down the world real interest rate, which pushes up asset prices, which helps to create the kind of sense of froth that we've had at times over the past 25 years. You know, one of the great mysteries, in, in, I mean, it's not a kind of luxury mystery, it's a burning mystery, is why have world interest rates been so low? And one of the explanations is that China and after the 1990s crises, other East Asian countries have become massive net savers. And so um, the world real interest rate needed to fall to, um, to bring them into balance. The other part of it, of course, is um, the counterpart to the China surplus, which isn't so big anymore, um, was, was cumulative external deficits um, in the United States and my own country, the United Kingdom. Um, and that can't go on forever. There is a point at which that would become unsustainable and where that would, and suddenly people would flipping flip from thinking, the dollar's the world's safest and most liquid asset to maybe the United States isn't going to be able to service its debts. We're nowhere near that point mm -hmm. um, at the moment. And we've seen over the last week, again, a kind of rush into treasury bills during stressed market conditions. But it is important always to remember that just as governments can't run deficits beyond their capacity to repay one day, so countries can't um, either. And so these Im imbalances in the world economy during the 1990s and, and 2000s were, were problematic. And the, the IMF, the G20, uh, all sorts of fora tried to, to get back to a better position, which essentially involved China consuming more at home and America and the UK and others consuming less um, at home, and none of it ever came to to anything. And I I discuss why in the in the book. But I mean, what I would say is that 
people always say mercantilism is 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 bad for people. It's pretty good for the mercantilists, actually. I mean, I used to have this debate with Bank of England staff, and they'd say mercantilism is crazy. Why are they doing it? And I'd say, well, mercantilism isn't crazy for the mercantilists. Travel around part of the British countryside, and you will st- still see families living in in splendid houses on the back of mercantilist policies in the 18th, in the first part of the 18th century. Right. And uh, Paul, just help me and my audience. Mercantilist policy is when a government in, uh, intentionally exports more than it imports. And, and yeah, export-led growth. Um, Hamilton um, pursued this policy for the United States. Britain pursued it for a little while in the 18th century. Uh, but I guess in many respects, Britain is the ideological home of, of free trade, certainly from the 19th century onwards. And where do you see this headed? So far, all of the issues you've been describing, the problems, have been economic. When does it become political? When does it become uh, related to the, the military, geopolitical? Um, you, you, can you tell us what the uh, Thucydides trap is? Uh, yes. The analogies between France and Britain in the 17th and 18th century as, as rivals, as well as just the assumption that the U.S. will continue to be the, the uh, hegemon. Is that under threat as China uh, continues to grow and thrive? Okay, there's a lot there. I want yes. to, that's fine. I want to break it into two bits. I want to say something, first of all, about China's net external investment, because your audience is kind of finance econ people. And then when I've done that, Perhaps you could remind me to come back to Thucydides' trap, and I'll I'll broaden it out uh, yes. a bit. So China's got this massive surplus, no longer running a kind of adding to it greatly each year, but cumulatively it's gigantic, and that's represented by the vast external reserves. So they have to employ that somewhere. And one of the ways they've employed it is through the Belt and Road Strategy. Um, and one of the interesting things about the Belt and Road Strategy is that um, it has concentrated to a large degree on on key infrastructural goods. Um, so ports, ports at the end of the Great Canals, um, ports in strategic um, places, which you can see there's an observational equivalence um, between the... the economic utility in terms of providing the Silk Road again, a modern Silk Road, and some latent or incipient um, security capability. I mean, China now has a military base in Djibouti, uh, roughly in the, in, the, in the Gulf. And I think we will probably see more of that as the years pass, because rather like with my country in the 18th century and 19th, um, where we we started off with coastal military um, um, bases to kind of protect the interests of our trade. Uh, China will want to protect the interests of our trade and its trade. This is incredibly important, something we all, this will bridge to the Thucydides trap, perhaps. Um, we all take for granted things like peaceful coexistence, which sounds rather abstract, but very concrete things like the sea lanes being open, the Malacca Straits being open. So who does that? The great navies have done that. Uh, my country's navy and then your country's uh, navy. 
And so it's not so easy to detach these military things from economic things. And another way they can't so easily be detached is the, the use of the dollar around the world um, is partly tied to American security relationships. There's an extraordinary moment in the mid-1970s. This is after, so just think about the, this must be an extraordinary time. Vietnam War, uh, which didn't go well and was, you know, just split American society in ways that I suspect the world is still living with. Um, Watergate and the collapse of, of a presidency and concerns about the integrity of, of Washington. And then on top of that, the Bretton Woods fixed exchange rate regime unravels. And when, when people just say, people like me say, well, the Bretton Woods regime unraveled, that makes it sound as though something that had been going on between 1944 and 1972 or whatever it was, roughly 30 years unraveled. 30 years isn't a very long time. I was a central banker for longer than that. But actually the significance of the Bretton Woods regime unraveling was that under the Bretton Woods regime, uh, the dollar was linked to gold. And it started to unravel when President de Gaulle of France asked, said, you, I'm going to give you back some of the dollars I'm holding. I want you to give me gold. And America, under the pressure of the war and under pressure of the welfare state it was building, couldn't really afford to hold its peg against gold. And that eventually uh, wet the splendidly funny moment about Nixon and the Smithsonian agreement during that, which we could come to if you like. But the real significance is this was the first time for 250 years that the world's monetary system hadn't been attached to a commodity. And it took the best part of 15, 20 years for all the central banks to figure out how to run a fiat monetary system. And so why would people want to hold the dollar? So here's the geopolitics. Mm -hmm. So in the mid-1970s, there is a deputation from Washington to Saudi Arabia, State Department and I think the Treasury Department as well, but I'm not sure about the composition of the, of the groups. And they go to Saudi Arabia and they do a kind of grown-up version of, here's the deal. We will expand and extend our security services to you, arms sales, et cetera, training, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you, in return, please commit to carry on invoicing oil and dollars. And, you know, lo and behold, 50 years on, we hear stories of, well, maybe Saudi Arabia's going, thinking about invoicing some oil in renminbi, or maybe Iran's going to invoice. And this sounds so techy, so business pages of the journal or the FT, but actually it's so massive for how everybody lives because undermining the dollar's international use would reduce the capacity of America to provide the security umbrella that it has provided us all with in the free world over the past 50 years. Paul, just help me understand what was it about the fall of the gold standard, the depegging of the dollar from gold, that necessitated that foreign non-U.S. countries uh, invoice trade in dollars, hold U.S. assets, uh, create you know, U.S. liabilities? Uh, wh why are sort of these offshore dollars so critical once the gold standard fell? And, you know, in the example of the Saudis, and then what might the world be losing if the the 
what might the U.S. be losing if oil starts to be invoiced in renminbi or rubles? It's purely geopolitics, which is if I hold a reserve currency and I've been involved in the past of advising on and managing the UK's foreign exchange reserves, when you decide, well, I'm, we're mainly going to hold dollars, which is what everybody does around the world, it's really important that the dollar is going to be stable and in particular, not have its value collapse, say by domestic inflation in the, in the United States. Mm-hmm. So the end of the Bretton Woods, the question it posed was, will the United States, will the Federal Reserve be able to preserve the value of the dollar externally, not by managing its external value, but by maintaining its internal value? Um, that's the first thing. And that, that, in a sense, that is Paul Volcker's contribution to, to modernity, to prove that it could be done. And Alan Greenspan's, um, contribution, um, was to show that this wasn't idiosyncratic to Paul, that actually it was possible for an organization to do this. Slightly forgotten that, which we may come back to, um, a bit later. And then the question is also geopolitics. Well, you want you want your um, your currency to be widely used. When sterling was the when the UK was, if you like, the hegemon during parts of the nineteenth century, it had security relationships all over the world that involved the use of sterling, and and that continued for much of the twentieth century. People people always find it remarkable that sterling continued to be used even after, so widely internationally, even after the United States was so much bigger. The answer is um, the value of inertia and the network effects and our security relationships around the world, distant past now. Um, so that's what was going on in the, in the mid-1970s. Um, but it, it, it does have, it's, it's another reason why um, this leads to the same so-called Triffin problem well, the United States needs to be able to sustain. Uh, people need to be able to believe that it can honor all of those dollar liabilities around the, um, the world. Can honor its liabilities to other countries that are denominated in dollars. That makes sense. What about other countries that have liabilities that are denominated in dollars? They owe, they, they have liabilities of which they're, they're not the monetary sovereign. They can't print their, their way out you know, a certain country, you know, in its own currency, if it wanted to borrow, it's 20%, but oh, I can borrow 5% in, in dollars. So there, in the same way, there's a proliferation of dollar denominated assets, there's been a, a proliferation of dollar denominated liabilities. Yes. How has that uh, impacted the, the US's as well as the Federal Reserve's responsibilities to provide assistance to the system during certain squeezes? You, you begin the, the book when um, you were at the Bank of England, you learned that the Federal Reserve didn't, during the great financial crisis, denied swap lines, the dollar swap lines that are now being sort of re-extended as we record on Friday, March 24th, uh, to India. And that exasperated you to, to no end. Why? Somebody walked into my office and they, I think I was deputy governor at the time, and they said, the Fed has just um, refused India a swap line. And my response was, don't they realize India is going to be a power? And so my thought was, um, it's a mistake to alienate Delhi because in the 21st century, the West is going to need to have a friendly relationship with Delhi. And so I thought the decision was above 
pay grade of the Federal Reserve. Um, I was not arguing, frankly, against, which would be against my previous book, Had Elected Power, that the Federal Reserve should itself be weighing geopolitics and deciding what to do. But I did think it should have gone to the White House or the State Department. And if the United States saw foreign policy reasons for providing a line, well, then the U.S. Treasury could do that, and the Fed could, could finance the Treasury. Uh, I don't think the chair of the Fed should sit around doing geopolitics. But I do think they, I think this is true beyond central banking. Um, I think that the holders of power, in particular specialized areas, need to be sensitive to the wider interests. Let me put it this way. Um, and I think I talk about this in the introduction, that that from most of my time in office, frankly, I was a staffer for 20-odd years, and I was a policymaker for a dozen years or something. Um, and for most of that time, you could be a specialist in monetary and financial policy, which is what I was, without knowing anything about trade policy. You, you had to know some trade economics, for God's sake, but you didn't need to know the stuff that trade negotiators know. Um, and even if somebody obviously knew about monetary, financial, and trade policy. They didn't need to know about the laws of the sea, or war and peace, or health policy, or environmental policy. So we all lived in our little specialist silos, if you like. And I think that's over. I think the stakes are, are too high. And that doesn't mean that everybody should be doing everybody else's job, which would be appalling. But I think you need to know enough for the they need, the incumbent, today's incumbents need to know enough about other parts of government to, as it were, knock on the door and say, I've got this thing that's going to sound really techy, but I think it really matters to you. And the person you're visiting says, no, 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 no. And then here's just monetary financial mumbo jumbo. And they say, no, 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 no. This is going to make, in this case, Delhi really fed up. And I'm not going to do it because it doesn't fit with my mandate. But you need to think about this. And you need to have the you need to have the knowledge, sufficient knowledge literacy I would call it to be able to knock on those doors, and then re you, a relationship already that when you go through the door the person doesn't think I've never met this person before who the hell are they? So this is kind of metaphorical, um, and I I just think that matters enormously. I'll give you an example now of how a live one in the United States. So the debt ceiling debate is being is is we're at that part of the political cycle um, again, and it's important to put it like that because this has happened before, and it's a hard knuckle combat within the Beltway where the stakes are pretty high in terms of domestic politics. And I want to say um, this has come up since my book was published, but there's a, a similar example in the book, but this is a better one. Um, I want to say, no, no, it's not like before. Vote default, vote Beijing. That, that, if, that if the debt ceiling isn't lifted and the United States defaults, that's a gift to Beijing. And I don't think this has crossed people's minds because the very people that um, are contemplating a default are probably among the people most worried about the challenge presented to the United States by Beijing. And my point isn't to make criticisms of individuals in Congress or elsewhere, let alone of their party platform, but everybody's just got to raise their game. 
in a way that my generation of policymakers didn't need to. Mm -hmm. I mean, extraordinary challenge of the times that our political leaders need to be bigger. Uh, just a, during a period where, for a while, probably in many places, they've been smaller. Um, and we just have to hope that the attractions of office become greater during a period of of enormous of enormous challenge. And where does the Thucydides trap come into that? What is that trap, and who who is who? And how do you think it ends? So Thucydides was um, an ancient Greek. Um, he was an Athenian, I think. I can't quite remember where he was born. And he wrote a book, uh, an extraordinary book, about the Peloponnesian War between Sparta, which was the established power, and Athens, which was the rising power. And towards the beginning, he says, sentence, I can't remember the exact quote, and in any case, he wrote it in ancient Greek, uh, says, well, this all happened because Sparta was jealous of Athens's rise and nervous about it, and Athens was jealous of Sparta's extant power, and so they, they ended up fighting each other. Now, when people talk about the Thucydides trap, they often make war sound inevitable. Actually, a good deal of Thucydides' rather extraordinary book is about contingency and about, oh, then they fell into doing this and then they fell into doing that, or actually they could have avoided this in some way. But anyway, this has become the standard model. Uh, a rising state ends up challenging an established state. An established state... Uh, seeing that coming, uh, anticipates it and tries to contain the rise of the rising state. The rising state doesn't like that or even anticipates the containment policy and seeks to, etc., etc. So it ratchets up. And a classic example of this is the Second German Reich in my country at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And I think all of this, and I think Graham Allison's um, book, Harvard scholar on this, is all very illuminating. But I don't, I think there's illumination elsewhere. In that, if you take the Second German Reich, British Al contest, it wasn't very ideological. It's just about power in a way, a relative power. Um, nor, in a different register, is the old Cold War terribly illuminating because Stalin. Stalin's Soviet Union had participated um, in the preparations for the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF, World Bank, the GATT, um, and then walked the Soviet bloc out of them in the late 1940s, maybe early 1950s, I can't remember. But what that meant was that the world basically had two completely distinct self-contained economic blocs. We were part of the bigger one, I guess, but the Soviet Union bloc was technically innovative for a long time. That's why we were so worried. Um, a kind of small tube for oil to pass in one direction and dollars in the in the other. Um, but basically, it was a security and foreign policy thing with, with, with very unpleasant proxy wars fought all over the world and obviously lots of espionage and so on, but not fought out in terms of commerce or in universities um, but media, and so on. Not much, anyway. 
Whereas the the contest between uh, the People's Republic and the West is in everything and it is everywhere. And I think a better, or certainly as good a source of illumination for that is the long struggle between my country, uh, Britain, and France in the long 18th century, basically from 1689 to 1850. And it, it, it was in the United States, you can see your Revolutionary War, War of Independence, as, as part of part of that great struggle, the French blockade. Um, it's on the coasts of India, Africa, um, Southeast Asia. It was, it was just, of course, all over Europe. It was everywhere, and it was in everything. It included commerce as well. And it went on for so long that there were periods of rapprochement. Um, Paris and London agreed uh, something like a free trade treaty in the middle of the 18th century, and then fell into war again. And that moment wasn't recaptured until the 1860s. Um, but there's something else about it too, which doesn't count, which, for example, the Second Reich, British um, problem, which destroyed Europe, for goodness sake, um, doesn't, doesn't quite reflect. And that is, it was also an, ideo an ideological struggle that from the perspective of London, there's a French perspective, of course, as well, uh, which at this distance is equally valid, but from the perspective of London, at the beginning of the 18th century, London's concern was with France's aspirations to universalist, absolutist monarchy. And at the end of the 18th century, it was the British concern was the French universalist revolutionary um, project. And during that period, the Irish-British politician writer Edmund Burke said, the problem with France isn't its power, it's that it's the wrong kind of power. And that's how we feel about Beijing. It's not just that they're very rich, which they're going to be, and very powerful, which they're going to be. And it's not just that they're now the world's biggest trading in goods, biggest trading um, country, and doing so all over the world. It's that their ideolog ideology, their, 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 the deep values of their uh, norms of their domestic governance and their ideas about international governments are fundamentally at odds with ours, and therefore it's not unreasonable to see for us to worry about whether this is a threat to our way of life. And I think that's what was going on between Britain and, and France at various moments. Th thank you. So you said the Second Reich, not the Third Reich, the Second Reich. It was less of an ideological battle between Britain and Germany. Yeah, first and well, whereas whereas first between Britain and France, uh, before that, it was ideological. Now the brewing conflicts between the United States and China is ideological in nature. It is everywhere at once. What is the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party right now? You said the People's Republic, the People's Republic of, of China. Uh, we, with Chairman Mao, that is communism. It is you know based on Marxism. People you know, f familiar with that, but the revolution of Deng Xiaoping, we're introducing markets. It's, it's okay to be rich. What is the, what is the philosophy now? Uh, how do people think about that? I mean, they're you know they're not reading Karl Marx every day. I, I don't think. Uh, yeah. And 
it, it remains a Leninist party in a very important way and in ways that Lida Xi has made plain over recent years. But there's one document that I think sums up what they're against, uh, which I think is quite useful, which I discuss in chapter nine. This, um, in 2013, a document was leaked from the Central Committee of the party called Document 9, which contains the seven no's. And my book came out just before Christmas, and I've had the wonderful opportunity and, and privilege of being able to present it in various places, and I often go hands up. Um, I say, how many people here have, have heard of Document 9 and the seven no's? And the answer is, is typically around one in a hundred. Um, and it, without much variance around that at all. I would it, be in the 99. Very few people have heard of it. It's an extraordinary document which absolutely everybody should read. Document 9 contains the seven no's. Um, five of them are... Um, it's a very well-constructed document. Five of them are the saying no to constitutional democracy, to freedom of the press, um... To a, to a free market, to a total free market, uh, to universal rights, to basically liberal values in the European sense of liberal. Whenever I use the word liberal, I mean the I mean the European sense mm -hmm. of liberal, not the American sense not, of left wing. wing. It, it's you really ought to return to the European use of the word. It's probably. Too late. You, you mean liberal in the tradition of uh, Adam Smith? That makes sense, but not so they're against all of these liberal values. But they're not against private markets, and they're not against individuals becoming wealthy via ownership of financial assets, so long as they toe the line. Yeah, and that, so the two, uh, the final two no's, six and seven, are basically known to criticizing the party state. Mm. Um. And it, it's, everyone should read this document. Um, those who can should read it. Those who can should read it in Mandarin. Um, it's, it's a very important document. And it goes along with um, speeches during the period from very important people in the party that said, well, actually, the party stands above the state. The party stands above the constitution. The rule of law in China means the rule of the party. Um, it's, you know, we, we just shouldn't... So... For those people of the nineteen nineties that thought, oh, they, you know, it's not only might they become like us, but they're pursuing economic liberalization, and therefore they're destined to become like us, and we should put all of our chips on on that. Um, document nine is a pretty comprehensive refutation of that of that policy, and we just, I just don't, personally, I don't think we should be surprised. Um, but as I said before, I, my criticism is putting. Is putting all our eggs in the other in the other basket, and how the relations with the U.S. and China proceed. You envision four possible outcomes that, if people want to know more about, they've got to read the book. I recommend it. It is Global Discord: Values and Power in a Fractured World Order. So that's the first eighteen chapters, Paul. I want to ask you about chapter 19, which is about your old life, your previous life as a central banker, and it is about the Bank of International Settlements, what central banker conferences are actually like, the gubernatorial collegiality, people getting along, doing all sorts of deals. And so I, I want to ask how those principles and issues that you discussed in chapter 19 apply to central banking today, where 
inflation accelerated beyond you know anyone's really wildest dreams in 2022. Uh, central banks perhaps were a little bit behind the curve. And now those rap in order to get ahead of the curve, those rapid interest rates, uh, ra rapid rise in interest rates is causing financial instability. Uh, we've had two U.S. banks, regional banks, being uh, taken over by the FDIC. Uh, the Federal Reserve has to extend a, a, another program to lend to regional banks. We're, you know, hopefully that uh, that works. We're we're in the process of that now. We'll we'll see. And then Credit Suisse, that European giant Swiss Swiss bank, uh, had to be taken over by UBS. What are your thoughts as a former central banker on what's going on right now? Well, let me say, first of all, as a way of bridging to that, that I think the discussions in the Basel Tower these days and in the IMF and elsewhere can't be as straightforward as they were when I was um, sitting there and, and later on chairing some of the committees there, um, precisely because of these geopolitical tensions. You know, that, that's something I didn't mention during that part is South China Seas, China Sea, China's fantastically assertive. Every everybody that's watching this should at least once a week um, top up their news on what's going on in the South China Sea and the North um, China Sea. The so I think it would just be a, you know, imagine having a, a, a discussion in Basel about cyber risk um, or the G twenty. That's quite tricky, actually. Um, so. You raised three things. One is um, inflation. So my own view is that the central banks didn't need to continue QE on quite the scale they did during the whole of 2020. My view is that, this is without hindsight, my view is that when the um, Biden administration um, launched the very large fiscal stimulus in 2021, the Federal Reserve should have raised interest rates a bit. Um, so I've got them stopping QE 2000, in, in the middle of 2020, and I've now got them raising interest rates in 2021. In, in parts of Europe, the labor force um, shrank very sadly because lots of people have got long COVID, and, um, and other people have chosen to retire early, which all of which is kind of part of that is sad and part of it not so sad. Um, that reduces the labor force and therefore aggregate supply is on a lower path and therefore you need to push aggregate demand onto a lower path so you need to have tighter policy um, but instead they said no we we they carried on stimulating it wasn't just that they were sitting still they carried on stimulating policy during um, this period and and then they said inflation was transitory and i think there was quite an important symbolic mistake during that period in that they didn't sound very concerned about inflation. And I think that's a great hazard for a central banker uh, because you you must always be concerned about inflation getting out of control upwards or downwards into deflation. It's symmetric. But you, the people talk about the anchor. The anchor is the committee. The anchor is the men and women on these committees. And, and, and people need to feel completely assured that they care about maintaining the anchor above everything else, everything else. And so I think that there have been unforced errors in monetary policy and that they're now playing catch up. And I think the markets and others have found that difficult because after many years of forward guidance, people often criticize QE. And I, I, I would be crit critical of QE for going up so long. 
But I think people don't criticize forward guidance enough. Forward guidance is a form of addiction for the market. They'll, oh, they'll tell us what they're going to do. And they'll tell us what they're not going to do. Well, as soon as policy moved away from the zero and lower bound, um, actually we were back to a world where the so-called forward guidance wasn't a commitment, it was a prediction. But it was a prediction when they didn't know what was going to happen in the world. When people used to know about this stupid expression, data dependence. I mean, what you're meant to do as a central bank is sit around in your office reading data because you don't know what's going to happen. Um, but what you do form a view on is you have an expectation um, and you have some uncertainty around that central expectation and you have to form a view on the balance of risks. Are they to the upside or are they to the downside? And you can have different risks for growth and, and inflation. And I think if they stuck to those old techniques of, of communicating and therefore thinking about monetary policy, uh, we wouldn't be quite where we are because they would have been somewhat more preemptive. The, the banking failures of the last um, fortnight or so are concerning and um, remarkable in some ways. I, I want to be backward looking on this. I don't want to say anything uh, that could add to the noise about what is going on at the moment because I don't have all the information of those sitting in office. But I do have things to say about how we got to this place, and I'm afraid they're somewhat critical. So in the United States, we've seen um, a large regional um, bank um, kind of fail, um, and partly because there was no resolution plan for it. What may not be widely known is that in 2019, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC effectively decided formally to cease resolution planning for large um, regional banks. Paul, what is a resolution plan? You know, I'm someone who, you know, the name of the show is, is Forward Guidance. You know, we talk about rates, quantitative easing. I don't think I really know what a resolution plan is. It's the difference between sort of Fed watchers and professional central bankers. What is no? I, well, I think this is really. I think the point you just made. I'm going to explain it in a moment. But I think this is absolutely vital. I think the fact that you don't know, and perhaps lots of your listeners and watchers don't know, viewers don't know, is why this has come about. So this is something that everybody ought to know about. And actually, central bank governors. I'm already repeating things I said on the record that I was in office and since. Central bank governors should talk about resolution policy a lot because everybody needs to know about it in advance. A resolution policy is a policy for taking a distressed bank, I mean, not just illiquid, but worse than illiquid, not something to be, that can be sorted out just by lending, that it's either solvent, insolvent, or not viable in some fundamental way. And getting it to shore or to safety without a taxpayer bailout. And that might be an orderly rundown, or it might be a recapitalization via what's called bailing in the bonds. Mm -hmm. So very simply, if you have at some one legal entity, a bank, um, it's got some deposit liabilities, it's in some insured, some uninsured, it's got some equity, but also it's issued some bonds. And if it gets into difficulty, um, insolvency difficulty, well, the equity is obviously lost, but the bonds could be converted into equity. And, and the bank is recapitalized. 
So this should be familiar to American corporate finance people because what I've just described is an administered Chapter 11 mm -hmm. rather than a negotiated Chapter 11. And the reason for it not being negotiated by a bankruptcy judge is you don't have time. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it has an international dimension to it that no corporate um, Chapter 11 has to anything like the same degree. And it was agreed after the last um, crisis that there would be such resolution plans for everybody of any significance. And uh, there is something called the key attributes, which is produced by a body that I happen to chair, but it's of no significance that I chaired it. Um, and the United States decided in 2019, Federal Reserve and the FDIC, not to do such resolution planning on a regular basis for the large regional banks. And this was reckless um, because it wasn't obvious that they otherwise had credible resolution plans. And I used to chair a body called the Systemic Risk Council with an extraordinary uh, membership, Paul Volkowin, who is with us, God rest his soul. Um, Jean-Paul Trichet, the um, president of the European Central Bank in the past, now Velink, who chaired the Basel Committee, Bill Tolson, who chaired the SEC, um, and I could go on. I mean, basically, uh, Sheila Baer created the um, Systemic Risk Council, who had chaired the FDIC. And we wrote a letter in 2019 to the Fed and the FDIC saying, you should not go ahead with these proposals that you have out for consultation because you it would involve stopping planning when you don't have a plan. And I am very sad. I am really very sad that it turned out they didn't have a plan. And I, you know, it's, I, I don't, I mean, I, I, I will say angry things if I carry on. So I, I think I'll leave it there, but I think there's some accounting to be done. This was, this was, SVB is a pretty simple bank. I mean, plainly an incompetent bank that didn't even, didn't even manage to protect itself against interest rate risk by swapping um, its fixed rate assets into Floatboard, and the supervisors have some questions about that as well. Um, people are saying, I don't know whether it's true, that the United States also chose not to implement the 2016 guidelines on interest rate risk in the banking book. I don't know whether that's true, but lots of people are saying it, and people are circulating charts that show that European banks, which Apparently in Europe, the guidelines were implemented that these charts show that European banks apparently have much smaller interest rate exposures than, than many um, US banks. So this isn't, this isn't, this bit isn't, the resolution stuff was a bit new. This, this bit isn't new. This is, this isn't all lessons post the crisis. This is SNL um, crisis stuff. Um, Savings and loans in the 1980s but, and 90s yeah. where, yeah. But, you know, this is just the history of banking. Yes. I mean, this is stuff people have known um, forever. And on Credit Suisse, which is what people call a global SIFI, systemically important bank, there was a plan, um, what's called single point of entry resolution, 
Um, and and that will have been a plan that I assume was maintained in close cooperation with the um, jurisdictions of the main Credit Suisse subsidiaries, which I guess, but don't know, the United States, United Kingdom, and somewhere in Asia, and somewhere in continental Europe. Um, and they didn't use that plan. And that the the um, chairman of the of the Swiss National Bank was quoted in the Financial Times yesterday as saying words to the effect, "Well, resolution is is only useful during normal times." And I want to believe that he was misquoted because it, I don't see how anyone could think that sentence. I mean, if one of the top 20 financial institutions in the world is failing. It is not a normal circumstance. The resolution is, I gave speeches over the years saying resolution is about being in a better circle of hell. And, you know, there's a risk that that image trivializes it. And I don't mean to, I mean, my generation did better than the generation of the 1930s. We did not have the great depression again. And no. that is something of to be grateful for, and something which in a kind of small way I'm proud of having been part of. But we said that the next generation can do quite a lot better than us, because we're leaving them with this technology um, where you don't have to use taxpayers' money to bail these people out. Paul, I just uh, want to make sure I, I understand. The, the Let's say the takeover of Silicon Valley Bank by the FDIC uh, they took it over. The Treasury then insured deposits over the $250,000 limit, and the FDIC embarked upon an attempt to sell the assets of Silicon Valley Bank, both the actual securities, the loans, but also the business units to various parties to attract bids in the same way you know, Sheila Baer from the FDIC did in 2008 with Washington Mutual, for, for example. Uh, according to reporting from Bloomberg, I saw that there were bids, but those bids were not taken for reasons uh, that were unclear. What would your resolution plan would have done different than? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I think I think SBB does have two entities at least. There's an operating bank and there's a holding company. Um, the there would have been an internal debt between the operating bank and the holding company. Uh, the holding company. Um, would have have issued, as well as equity to the market, it would have issued bonds to the market. And there'd be nothing else going on at the holding company level at all. No derivatives, contracts, or anything like that. The the um, operating company, and um, what I'm going to say doesn't depend on any details of SVB. Um, the, the operating company gets into difficulty, it loses its equity, its equity is written off, um, but the internal loan or bond between the holding company and the operating company, that gets converted into equity. Mm -hmm. So so the operating company is now recapitalized. So then the question is, is the holding company now still solvent or is it bust? If it's solvent, move forward. If it's bust, well, then you have to have a resolution at the holding company level, and that would involve um, writing off the equity because it's bust, and the bondholders, they they become their bonds get converted into equity, or sufficient of their bonds, sufficient proportion of their bonds 
is converted into equity to recapitalize the group. And they become, the ownership of the group moves from the equity holder, the previous equity holders, to the old bondholders who are now the equity holders. Now, in the United States, for various complicated reasons, um, this would be done via a bridge um, company administered by the FDIC, but all of that is detail. Um, it's kind of important detail to executing it. It's not important detail in terms of understanding the basic structure. I actually think it would have been quite easy um, in in this particular case. And the Systemic Risk Council letter from Volker, Trichet, Gilbert, myself, and many others in 2019 said, you should seriously consider um, requiring regional banks to issue this bail-inable debt as part of having a bail-in resolution plan for them. Is that bail I don't that understand, I don't understand why that wasn't done. And, it, and actually, had they done it, it's not just that it would have avoided the actions that you're describing, which it would have. Also, something else, something rather marvelous would be being said now, which is, my God, we seem to have overcome the problem of big bank failures. Not the very biggest bank, but actually by showing that that could have worked for a medium-sized um, bank, it would have given people much greater faith um, that it would work for the very large institutions. So I think I think that um, what's happened was avoidable, um, and and I think that is a I think that raises pretty big questions about banking policy going forward. But it's not quite the moment to be to be addressing those questions because there's still a degree of nervousness out there, of course, Definitely. and. and um, the Federal Reserve hasn't yet got inflation under control, um, and so there's a lot more to be navigated yet. But, but I, I, I am, I am, and I'm sure everyone feels this really. I mean, this is so soon after the last crisis. I mean, I would never have guessed, and I that 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 people would have relaxed their vigilance so quickly after the last crisis. And look what's happened, socially, culturally, constitutionally, even on in both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, big financial crises, they dislocate our societies in, in really difficult ways. And we've got to have policies for dealing with them, and we've got to have policies that officials stick to. So in the United States with the regional banks, they didn't even bother to have a policy. And in, in Switzerland, it seems that they had a policy and then didn't carry it out. And, you know, I hope I'm wrong about those things. Uh, and for those concerned, I apologize if, if I have got the facts and my interpretation of the facts wrong. And so a bailout is injection of liquidity that's either funded by the government or just central banks. And, and, and a, that, that's a bailout. But a bail-in is when the bondholders are forced to take losses. The a bailout, I, as I use the word bailout, a bailout is when... Um, is when taxpayers provide solvency support in some way or guarantees. I don't think providing liquidity against good collateral is a bailout. I mean, bank I'm, is runnable. Bank I agree with you. Yeah. Runnable. If I if I sitting there or you know the people who are in central banking, if they lend against um, collateral and are sensibly valued uh, with with haircuts, that's not a bailout. Mm -hmm. The bank the bank has to repay. 
And if it doesn't repair, you realize the collateral. I mean, right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. If I was a dictator, I would not call the recent actions a bailout, but everyone else is calling it a bailout. So that's, you know what I mean? Well, it really, it, you know, the, the policymakers here, I mean, if I may say so, um, for really senior levels, just need to get America away from this language. And the best way to do that is to talk about these issues during financial peacetime. Mm -hmm. Yes. Too many speeches about monetary policy, many of which turned out to be not very enlightening as it happened, you know, it's just bad luck, and not enough speeches about this kind of thing. And yet when it happens, it's the most important thing ever. Yes, it is. And, and you know, good crisis management is made during financial peacetime. It is not made in the midst of crisis. One can, you know, banks aren't new things. No. And that, the, you know, Fulton at the end of the 18th century wrote instructively about this. My predecessors in the Bank of England in the canonical crisis in 1866 wrote instructively about this. Um, and the time for debate and discussion and, you know, the best sense of the word education um, is during financial peacetime. And I hope that going forward, the leaders of the Fed uh, and at the ECB and elsewhere will talk about resolution policy during financial peacetime. Because why do we supervise bank regulate from supervised banks at all? It's because of the costs of failure, the prudential regulation, not the conduct regulation. Well, we should work backwards from what are we going to do when they do fail? No one's ever going to supervise, although it's possible that banks weren't supervised well here, no one's ever going to supervise banks well enough to prevent failure. So policy has to be reoriented to what will we do when there is a failure and how does that we need to convey what we will do in ways that shape incentives. Because the bondholders should have been charging, in the structure I'm describing, the bondholders would have been charging at premium and that would have that would have provided a signal of... of of, of, of some deterioration. Whereas in the equity market, the equity market's wonderful, but the equity market is populated by optimists. Yes. Still they're not. Bond markets are popular, corporate bond markets are populated by people that have a better balance between um, pessimism and optimism because they, they've got some risk. Mm -hmm. So they don't get repaid. Uh, and we need somehow, and we you know my aim when I was involved with this was yeah, to put it in a kind of slightly silly way, was I really wanted banking to be part of capitalism, to be a part of a market economy. Mm. And that should remain, I think that should remain the goal. Because if not, you know, somebody is going to say persuasively, we've just got to break all of these things up. I believe you referenced uh, Walter Badgett, who you know, had to say that you should central banks should lend freely against good collateral at high levels of interest. If we apply that to sound institutions, to sound institutions, thank to you. To sound institutions. So that is rarely, rarely. Um, so Badgett was writing after this crisis in 1866. And what happened in 1866 is that the Bank of England, uh, my former shop, they let Overend and Gurney go bust. And no one that's watching this will have heard of Overend and Gurney. And Overend and Gurney was gigantic in Britain, the most powerful country in the world in the 1860s. And then having let Overing and Gurney go bust, 
because it was fundamentally unsound. And they had ins what we would call inspectors go in and have a look to check that. A former governor and two other people went in and have a look at the books and advised, don't lend. Um, and then, of course, there was contagion. And then they led to everybody against good collateral. And they they more or less stabilized um, the market. And everyone always takes from that story. I'm kind of emphasizing this rather. Everyone always takes that away from that story. Um, it's 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 being prepared to lend against collateral. That's absolutely true. It's vital. But the first part of the story is important too. Don't lend to unsound firms. Um, but what my generation tried to add. But if you're not going to lend to the unsound firm, then you need a plan which we call a resolution plan, for the unsound firm not to collapse in a disorderly way. Mm. Yes. So you need liquidity policy and you need resolution policy, and everything else in prudential policy should work backwards from that. So I would hone in on two things, lend against good collateral and then at high levels of interest. Good collateral, the government, U.S. government securities that can be pledged in the bank term funding program, they're certainly of extremely high credit quality, but they have fallen in value because of interest rate risk as interest rates have risen. And the bank uh, a program lends $100 uh, at par value instead of what the market value would say. And then also the high rate of interest, it's I think the overnight, uh, it's the index swap plus 10 basis points. Is that a high rate of interest? So on the first bit, I mean, if the counterpart is to false and the Fed end up holding treasuries and they hold the treasuries to maturity, they're not going to lose money. That's why they'll be lending at par. Mm -hmm. On the interest rate, what matters actually is that you lend, it's not so much at a high rate of interest, it's at a rate of interest that is higher than the market rate. So it needs to, it needs to be, it's like an ex-post insurance premium. Um, so whether that's high enough, I'm not close enough to the detail to form a judgment. These are when you get to the real details of things, you really do need to be part of the situation to make yes. that. But the principles should be articulated um, before. Um, the other thing you said is good collateral. It's it's actually this is an expression kind of that one can be slightly loose about. One can lend against risky collateral as long as one understands it, knows how to value it, and knows what haircut to to, to set. So portfolios of loans, you can lend against those. As long as you are, the condition that I hope the Bank of England still has, it's one that I authored, I think, which is, well, we, sh we should only ever take things as collateral that um, which we are capable of managing ourselves and we are capable of valuing. So I should have put that the other way around. Mm. So, you know, um, I think for some types of collateral, the New York Fed has occasionally or systematically hired outside bodies, asset managers to help them with. We 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 didn't do that. We trained up. We had a in the last crisis we had a fortnight or so where we had a firm behind a Chinese wall teach an absolutely top quality squad of Bank of England people how to do various things. But I was firmly of the view, and so was the then Governor Mervyn King, that if we lent against collateral. We had to be capable of managing it ourselves, because if the counterparty defaulted, we would be the owner um, of that collateral. I mean, when you take collateral, um, you always have to think about yourself as a contingent outright owner. 
of those instruments. Mm. I mean, collateral, in my view, other than setting interest rates, collateral policy is what central banks do. And I think part of the solution for the liquidity problems in banks, I mean, King has advocated a version of this, and I've advocated a version of it. Uh, I, I would have banks um, cover the entirety of their short-term liabilities with assets that are discountable at the central bank or central banks around the world at the discounted value. Paul, that makes such eminent sense. I don't imagine an argument that would be against that. Why is that not policy? Well, I hope it will be, and I hope all your listeners and viewers will say, this is a great policy. Where can we find where Tuck has written about this, where King's written about this? We both have. We both sent it out at some length, and I think it should happen. And, and this debate about should we raise the deposit insurance ceiling, which has been going on here in the United States, yes. is would go away in these circumstances. Because what the deposit insurance debate blurs is how are we handling a liquidity crisis and how are we handling a solvency crisis? A liquidity crisis, every, everybody with a short-term claim would be covered in, by the system I just described because the central bank would lend, could be fast amounts of money, would lend against collateral, much of it prepositioned with the central bank, so long as the bank was sound. And if the bank wasn't sound, it would go through a resolution procedure where the not only the insured depositors, but the uninsured depositors would would take losses after equity, after the bail-in bonds, after subordinated debt. And actually, I think I, I've written this out in one place. I think that the authorities ought to prescribe more the capital stack so that uninsured depositors, they get covered by my liquidity thing, and whether it's a liquidity thing, or it's just a liquidity problem, and when it's a solvency thing, they they eventually get all their money back, and possibly very quickly, um, because there are so many layers of protection um, ahead of that. And I think bank supervisors just haven't, they, they've continued to focus mainly on prophylactic supervision. And, and, you know, I believe in prophylactic supervision. It's a job that I did as a young man. Um, but I think the most important thing is to work backwards from failure. What would you do if it's illiquid? What would you do if it, it's insolvent? And perhaps there are other scenarios as well. I don't know. And I don't think they have done that. Um, they either haven't as planned as much on that as they should have done, or they have planned and they haven't stuck to the plans. And yeah, I think it's too early to be sure on that. For me, it looks as though the United States didn't do the plans, and for the regional banks, and for Switzerland, it looks to me as though they had a plan and didn't stick to it. And I think, you know, um, but I, I, w I want to be wrong about this, by the way. I won't ask you how you think things things are going, given your, your your formal role. But I will I will ask that you talked about the capital stack. There's equity, then pref, you know preferred, all the way down to uh, de depositors. You should you should get paid uh, first. I believe it's the case in the uh, takeover of Credit Suisse by UBS that those bail-in bond holders were paid out nothing, while the equity holders were took a severe haircut. Uh, however, they did get something. Is there precedent uh, to that? 
Well, I, 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 I'm not going to answer your question at any length, and that's because um, I've read the emergency legislation in English, but I haven't read it in German, and English isn't an official language of Switzerland. And although I am aware of the prospectus terms um, of of the Swiss codes, I have not reread the prospectus. Um, I think there is a question about if there were rights in the prospectus for the AT1s to be written down under contract, why was uh, a provision needed in the emergency law to write them down as well? Um, normally, people are quite careful about doing that because if you put something in statute, it implies you need to do so, which implies they weren't satisfied that the contract covered it. But uh, because that may be a misunderstanding, and uh, I think that I actually think that although that is understandably what the market is is fussed about now, I think the bigger questions are: you had a plan. Why didn't you carry it through? And Thomas Jordan say, well, the resolution is for normal circumstances. Don't, I mean, you know, of course it's not. The failure of a SIFI isn't normal. Um, um, so I think, and, and you know, what is the resolution plan for UBS? I mean, that question will need to be answered at some point, not in a great rush. It's important that things calm down, um, first of all. Paul, I think, so I think the set of issues raised by Switzerland is different from the set of issues raised here. The set of issues raised here is seems to me less excusable, but more easily repaired. And I, and I want to finish on this note, if I may, uh, which is, because this feel like two conversations. Yes. Given the geopolitics, and this is, this is in my book, towards the end, the West cannot afford another financial crisis. It cannot. Um, what we saw last time was Beijing felt that it could be more assertive and more confident in the world. I am not somebody that believes we ought to be aggressively trying to contain China and things like that. Planning, that's at all realistic. Mm -hmm. But we've got, uh, we shouldn't have any problem with the Chinese people or with their civilization, which is magnificent. We're We've got a problem with the party, and they've got a problem with us. And um, but the thing for us to do, we can't. They're so big and so successful, and and they've got so much human capital. Um, what we can do is avoid. We can avoid being over dependent, where being over dependent could hurt us in bad states of the world. We must keep friends and allies around the world. Washington hasn't always been very attentive to that. And it needs to be, it needs to be persistently attentive to it with everybody, really. And secondly, we can't afford to make mistakes. Our biggest mistakes can, and problems concern democracy and discontent and things. We also can't afford to make technical mistakes. And one of them is we cannot afford another, afford another financial crisis. And this isn't the hardest thing in the world to afford. And those people that press for deregulation, not deregulation of conduct type things, which is a, you know, which is different political parties have different views. But but wanting deregulation of stability policy is to jeopardize 
America to jeopardize the West and our way of life. And we, you know, it's, we just got to get a grip, frankly, around the importance of stability in the financial system is as important as stability in prices. We want, we want low and stable inflation and a resilient financial system. And this isn't some luxury. This is a precondition for sustaining our way of life. You said financial stability as important as price stability, implying that they are equal. A horrible question to have to ask, but what if central bankers have to make a choice between one? No, they won't have to. They won't have to. It's it's it, this this debate about trade-offs and things. It's so silly. I mean, when there's a desperate financial crisis, aggregate demand and spending and confidence collapses. Um, and as some of the central bankers have pointed out, they've got instruments for catering both. But when it comes to it, there's never really a clash. Over, I mean, I think myself, I thought that at the time that when in the mid of the last decade, 2016-17, when fiscal policy was switched off effectively, and the whole job of trying to revive the economy fell um, to monetary policy, which was which itself a problem, but not something central banks could control. I thought at that point that central banks and regulators should have been increasing minimum haircuts and creating increasing minimum margin requirements to reduce the increase in leverage in traded markets. And those are powers they have, including in the US. And um, there's a kind of awesome beat with the USO and they haven't got the powers to do this and the other. And they haven't got quite as many powers as in Europe. But they've got they've got powers to do what I've just described, and they should have done they should have done that. You're absolutely right. In a panic, lending stops, and that can be very deflationary. I, I just read this morning that very few investment banking deals are being done in, in the wake of the fall of, of uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure to hear your insights. So generous with with your time and your your knowledge, and thank you also for tying a bow on those two conversations. I felt like we had two conver two excellent conversations, one about geopolitics, one about central banking. So I'm glad you connected at the end. Uh, your book is Global Discord and everyone who is watching this interview uh, needs to go out and buy it. Paul, thank you so much and thank you everyone for watching. Well, thank you very much and, to, and again to your audience. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.